from our inception, Crimson Bikes has always been about making both bikes and bike culture more accessible. And so we tend to, quite honestly, we don't use the Lance Armstrongs of the world and what have you not as our, um, our champions. What we use are just regular people. Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other entrepreneurs about how they hustle their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Spivey. I'm a BFA-MBA hybrid and the son of a drifter. That's, that's right. I am the son of a drifter. I was born in Minnesota. I was raised in Wisconsin and Alaska. I summered in Charleston and Atlanta, and I'm currently a Washington State resident that is moving back to Boston. Yes, it's true. This is the second time I've moved from Washington State to Massachusetts. It's really just a quick 3,000-mile drive. Anyway, this is all relevant because I'm talking to you from inside the Mobile Incubator, a rolling recording studio inside a vintage camper trailer that travels across the U.S. It's beautiful, and it's towed by a 70s disco ambulance. For this episode, we're parked at Zone 3 here in Alston, Massachusetts, for an interview with Charles T. James and Daisy Chu, owners of Crimson Bikes. And this episode is a part of a three-part series of mom-and-pop businesses. That's right, Charles and Daisy are a couple. So, running a bike business. Hmm, bikes. Let me tell you, the oldest purchase that I still own today is my bike. I've had it for 15 years now, and it's a 1976 Schwinn Collegiate. You can see there's a there's a commonality here. I own a bunch of <laughs> vintage uh, things with wheels. That Schwinn is sparkly green had the s on the seat it came with a pair of side baskets on the back it was chromed out had the whole headlight taillight combo with a generator so with a flick of your wrist you could power the lights and my neighbor uh after i bought it he brought me over a 1950s vintage uh bell to put on the handlebars so this thing is tricked out all right so i bought this bike and to be honest when i ride it people turn their heads you know just like they turn their heads when they see me drive by in an ambulance and they ask where I got it. They want to know things about it. So I think that's an important part. You know, how do you sell something? Well, for me, I wanted a head turner, right? Most important is I wanted to love it. But also, it's a talking point. It gets people interested. Because people are interested about bikes. They're interested about culture. They're interested about cars. They're interested in anything that has wheels. And so I think today we're going to talk about how do you sell a bike? Uh, is it based on ease of use? Because uh, some folks just want to get to work. Is it based on their health regimen? And is it based on culture? Like, do they want to fix it themselves? Do they want to be part of a recreational bike culture? So today we're going to talk with Charles and Daisy. Charles is from Mississippi. Daisy's from here in Austin. They met in a Harvard dormitory bathroom. Uh, you'll hear that story. You'll also hear the story about how Charles fell in love with biking uh, because he and his friends rode off to go kill a goose. Yep, you'll catch that later. Uh, so they, Charles founded the company as a college student, and then Daisy joined in. And, you know, he realized early on that he didn't want to work in tech like he was supposed to. He wanted to help people experience bike riding, that that would be a much more fulfilling move for him. And Daisy, Daisy has a disability that requires her to be in a wheelchair, so she's always attached to these wheels, and it's a huge proponent of adaptive cycling and the accessibility in order to exercise for those who go through disabilities. I think Charles and Daisy love to show people the feeling of freedom that comes from riding a bicycle. Let's hear their story. 
My name is Daisy Chu. I am one of the co-owners of Crimson Bikes. I do a lot of operational and procedural and yeah, I do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a school teacher. So um, when I jumped on board here, I really had kind of a mission that I wanted to do to carry out in Crimson Bikes that I'm probably going to talk about later. Hi everybody, my name is Charles James. I am the founder of Crimson Bikes as well. Uh, Crimson Bikes started um, in 2009 as a bike sharing program uh, that eventually evolved into what it currently is, a bike shop and uh, service company that exists both in store and online and with a mobile delivery service. So uh, those are all kind of my brainchild uh, that I was able to develop in uh, conjunction with Daisy. And for myself, when I'm not answering all the questions, I'm primarily focused on business development and uh, our uh, marketing plan. I grew up in Alston Brighton off Com Ave. I was born in Brigham and Women's Hospital, so I literally have lived here my entire 32 years. I went to uh, Boston Latin School. It's one of the uh, exam schools. So in some parts of the country, they call them magnet schools. It's like you can enter in the seventh grade or the ninth grade and you take an exam to get in and it basically guarantees that you're gonna go somewhere awesome for college. I actually grew up in Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi, the capital, which is for anybody who even knows much about the South, the only part that they'd be able to pick out. I did live for a couple years in uh, this little tiny town in Alabama though, called Monroeville, Alabama. Monroeville. Yeah, it's this uh, tiny town, obviously named after President James Monroe, but its claim to fame is being the setting for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, legend in the South is really important. So like kind of growing up, whether you're in Jackson, where kind of I spent most of my life or Monroeville or anywhere else, these kind of local legends tend to you know, dictate like your understanding of the South. One of the things that made me want to come to Boston specifically for school was I wanted to challenge that, you know, to really see outside of that bubble and, and to really examine my own perspectives in the world. And, you know, since, you know, kind of being up here now for goodness, the last 15 years, nearly Boston's become home. How, how did you learn to ride a bike? I never stepped foot into a bike shop until I came to college. You know, you don't see a person riding on the road um, on a road bike. You don't hear too many of too many people riding mountain bikes. Down there, it's super, super niche. You know, every in most places it's niche already, but, you know, in the South, especially in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, places where there's just not that really big bike culture, you don't see that that much. Mm. You know, so growing up, like, my first exposure to it was I step on step foot on campus. I see a lot of people riding bikes around and I'm like, oh, I want to do that, too. So, you know, the only thing that I could think of is where does a person buy bikes? Oh, you buy bikes at Target. So I go to Target. I bought a $50 bike. I had the chain snap on me in traffic the next day. By the Charles River, there's always kind of been a riverway path that people have been able to bike. That's where I pretended to learn to ride a bike when I was young. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot of biking back then, and there certainly weren't as many kind of like identified lanes and kind of separate trails and lanes for that. Learning to ride a bike was, there was a little apartment complex that I lived, had a slight hill that, uh, that went down. 
and I had a bike that was like probably from the 60s, if I remember right. It was this like yellow bike that had one of these super hard tires with no air in them. Learning how to ride was fun because at first my mom was trying to to teach me and I just like, I, I just didn't get it. Like I do with many things that I'm learning. I just said, you know what? I think I'll figure this out, you know, if I just go off and try it myself. And so I just like positioned myself at the top of that hill and just went down until I got it. Crashed a few times. And, you know, 95% of Americans know how to ride a bike. But the one thing that most people have kind of like in common is that sort of experience of when did you first learn to ride a bike? And what was that feeling that stuck with you from that point all the way through to today? And it's like for a lot of people, it's really visceral. You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's this thing that you think about it and you're like, man, that was so awesome. And so what's really cool to us is we you know, want to be able to provide people that experience with the uh, the bikes that we sell, with the kind of the services that we offer and whatnot, there's something that gives them that ability to feel that kind of just really pure joy. As a kid, it was just your typical big box three three wheeled contraption or mm-hmm. two wheeled contraption with extra wheels. I don't know how many wheels were on it at this point. I find myself looking at a lot of the new technologies that are being developed and thinking about how they can be used especially because I have I have a motorized tricycle. We put an electric wheel on it, mm-hmm. and now I just want to keep finding more and more adaptive technologies that I want to get into and share. Like I saw this hand cycle for like off-road traveling. I was like, I need one of those now. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's really hard for me to get around because my legs don't work as well as I want them to anymore, and so I need kind of motorized adaptive cycling whether that's hand cycling or just having a motor so that I don't have to pedal as much. It's much more easy for me. Like I've, I've found even having this wheelchair is a lot, makes it a lot more easy to get around. When, when do you, this meet? is where we differ on the, how we met story. I'm convinced that it was super early, like 8am because I was like really tired and groggy nope. and going into the bathroom. Nope. And I, yep. No, it was, it was totally was. And I opened the door and I hear someone in there like, someone's in here. And it's a, <laughs> it's a girl. So, you know, I live in a U with a bunch of dudes. I'm like, Oh, Oh my goodness. For the record, Charles does have a history of waking up in the middle of the day. Uh, so it was not early in the morning because mm. I had already been to take my first test mm. and I needed my roach spray mm. and I needed to use a bathroom. Well, it was, it was eight o'clock on Charles time. Mm. It was later. I was like, did you walk in on me while I was in the bathroom? And he was like, I guess so. Yeah. And I was teaching from the time I graduated up until just last yeah. year. And I, so and last I had, summer. Yeah. And I had another two years in college kind of in between that time. So we meet, we say, hey, we're both really cool people. We should know each other. And sort of right in the middle of that, like that's where kind of Crimson Bikes got started. You know, sort of my tangential um, interest on off on the side. So after my like horrendous, like, you know, first experience with uh, with bikes, I'm, you know, I, I had spent my $50 and I wasn't going to spend anymore, you know, like. But a couple years later, I, you know, moved into a, um, into a new room with a roommate who was a bike mechanic. He told me about, you know, how he loved the bikes and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's great. Wonderful. But I wasn't really all that into it. I happened on biking sort of by chance. 
So two girls who lived in, in one of the suites in our same dorm. And, uh, you know, we were pretty good friends with them. So we, you know, we, we would talk all the, all the time about like different things, like blah, 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 blah. And there, one, one of those conversations that we were having with them, oh, I'm turned off to sort of like men in 20, what was it? 28, 20, 2008, whatever, you know, can't really do the same thing that cavemen did. They were like, if you guys had to hunt um, anything and catch it, you wouldn't even be able to do it. And the two of us, these kind of these two macho dudes are like, oh, yeah, we definitely could. Whatever, whatever. And so they made us a bet. They were like, OK, if you were able to hunt anything and kill it and well, we would clean it and cook it for you. And mind you, this is like drunk person logic. Right. And we're all looking on coming up with this. And the two of us are like, no, we definitely could do that. We absolutely could. Whatever. You know, we're going to go out and do something right now. So these two um, drunk idiots um, go and we look in our room and we see what do we have? Well, we had to figure out two things. First of all, what could we reasonably um, like kill? Uh, what, what kind of animal can we murder? Right That's a now? good thing to be <laughs> contemplating when you're drunk. Okay. And so we said, you know, I think the one that we're going to do, there's all these geese around the river. That's going to be the animal that we're going to absolutely slaughter right now. And then we had to figure out, okay, so we can do that, but we can't really do it with our bare hands because, you know, we're, we're, we're like cavemen. We can figure this out. So uh, Dan had a pocket knife and, uh, and I had a paintball gun. So <laughs> we figured between the two of us, we should be able to take something out. So we, uh, and mind wow. you, it's, it's like kind of the middle of December at that point. So it's snowing. It's right before finals. And he's like, we'll totally be able to do this. So long story short, we go out, you know, it's super cold in order to kind of transport ourselves to where the, the geese are. He lets me borrow one of his bikes and we bike down there and fail just miserably, thankfully. But on the way back, um, he lets me switch and use his bike, which is this really nice road bike. And I got on that thing and it just it felt like riding on air. And I, I can't like sort of wrap up the sort of that feeling into kind of words but the closest actually the closest thing that it mirrors is that first time I learned to ride a bike and I was going down that hill and didn't fall and it was like oh just this pure joy and exhilaration you know as we're going back to on to our dorm I'm like you know I might be able to take this to on to my final tomorrow and so I did that and then I was like Maybe I'll take it to my next final. And then it became, maybe I'll take it to Trader Joe's to get like, you know, snacks while I'm studying. And so it turned into this thing where eventually I was using his bike so much. He says, you know what? I think I just need you to well, figure out how to well, fix up one of your own. We found some parts here and there and wherever and fixed up, you know, Charles's first bike, this old step through frame Marin Larkspur, you know, this, this kind of old bike that, became the one that really converted me and brought me over to the, the bike world. And in the process, you know, taught me a lot of skills about bike maintenance and stuff like that, which, you know, would, you know, kind of further down the road lead to the creation of Crimson Bikes. When we created Crimson Bikes, it was, you know, the, the kind of the core of it was I felt really, really fortunate to have discovered something that I never would have had access to. Dan's um, road bike was really nice. And I think the kind of the total value of it new would have been over a thousand dollars. 
And, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, um, not a whole lot of money. And, you know, just, you know, the, my whole concept was $50 Target bike, $50 Walmart bike, you know, Kmart bike. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so picking up a bike that didn't weigh, you know, 50 pounds or riding on a bike that I didn't have to, you know, put a whole lot of effort into to make go was not really something that I, ne- mm-hmm. I ever would have experienced, you know. And so what it really started with Crimson Bikes, what it started with, I want to be able to give this feeling this experience to people, um, you know, without them having to think about how am I going to afford a thousand dollar bike? So in 2009, the bike share program is off the ground. Mm-hmm. So we create, we created this, uh, this system, uh, this checkout model where, um, you know, uh, I had a friend of mine who was, a a, uh, computer science major, actually an engineer, but he had taken on computer science, uh, create the website to manage the checkouts because I knew that, you know, I'd done some research on these different bike share models and all of them, you know, that were really successful had a really strong kind of technology underpinning. And uh, so I said, okay, I can figure out a way then for us to take a website and, you know, manage checkouts. And then we'll combine that with a key cabinet that we can digitally control access to, to manage the keys. You know, and with that, we can, you know, take membership payments and then, you know, set this whole thing into motion. And so so when I graduated, Crimson Bikes had kind of reached its as a bike share had kind of reached its pinnacle. There were rumors of kind of Hubway coming on. And so, you know, at that point, I feel pretty I feel pretty um, accomplished with what we've done. And then also. I have my own professional aspirations that I wanted to do. I saw Crimson Bikes as being something that I wanted to leave behind to other students to manage. And then I would kind of go off and, you know, work in tech or or whatever else to, you know, really, uh, you know, build my professional life. And so I did that. I went and I worked in uh, in tech. I was still in Boston, but that it wasn't really something that was fulfilling to me. And I really gave it a good shot. I was working at Harvard Business School in the uh, in the technology department for five years. And at, throughout that entire time, Crimson Bike still existed. It wasn't as relevant as a bike share anymore, but we had come up with a way to, um, you know, kind of morph it into a bike rental program to really um, um, to supplement the offerings that Hubway was giving to uh, to folks. It was kind of in that time where I had to really just kind of get real with myself and say, you know, I've been trying this tech thing for a while. It's not really as fulfilling to me as the stuff that I go and do, you know, from, you know, six, six to ten when I'm tinkering on bikes and, you know, putting that smile on people's faces in that way. And so, you know, finally, I just, you know, in 2015, I said, you know what, I'm I'm done kind of moonlighting with the thing that I love. I want to see if I can turn it into something that can accomplish this, uh, this mission and, you know, kind of support me financially and grow and support itself really. Yeah. I think that's where, where Daisy's, uh, involvement becomes like really important. For a good chunk of the bike share's existence up until Charles decided he was going to go full time, we were basically doing our day jobs and then trying to make everybody who had a bike close to campus happy. And we were doing a decent job of it, don't get me wrong. But he was not feeling the most happy with his job. And we were like, okay, well, we have a couple brands that we we know are behind us. And 
essentially fine. What we need to make this happen now is to like you're gonna you're gonna have to commit to doing a lot of the grunt work, yeah. Charles, for a good amount of that time until we can. Like we have to see if it's going to pan out, so that means you're going to have to assume a lot of the grunt work. Mm-hmm. And since he was okay with that, I was like, "Well, all right then, leave your job, go ahead. <laughs> I grant your wish." <laughs> and then from there, in 2015, we started. We literally had been working out of a broom closet yeah. from the onset of the bike share, and actually from. After the bike share took off, we、yeah. didn't assume the broom closet till later. And when I say a broom closet, it literally was a broom closet that I decorated the heck out. Of. Well, it's an eight by eight broom closet. That's like a utility <laughs> closet. And I decorated the heck out of that space to make it something where we could feature some of the product. Like we were like, okay, if we're gonna do a bike shop, let's try and do a bike shop out of this tiny little space.、Mm-hmm. And for two years, we with Charles kind of. Handling most of the day-to-day operations, and me basically using every single ounce of my off time at school, answering emails and putting orders through, and then at the end of the day coming over and helping to talk to the people who were coming to the shop. We realized over the span of like twelve to eighteen months, we were like, "Whoa, this is really working." Yeah, it was taking off.、Hmm. I mean, the success that we were seeing in that little tiny space, we're like, you know. What we've the business model that we've come up with, if we actually had a legitimate space, not a legitimate space, but rather a storefront that people can see, you know, we can, you know, magnify the success in ways that we, you know,、mm. could never see here. So, so where did you guys move?、Uh, the first thing that we did is,、uh, you know, we talked to Giant and we created a partnership with、uh, Giant Bicycles. They're the largest manufacturer of bikes in the world, and they had a corporate store. Here in Boston, that they wanted someone to run, and they wanted that someone to have a very innovative and kind of new approach to running a bike shop, because the context is that bike shops in the last twenty years have started to fizzle out. About a third of them have closed, and our model was one that was enabling us to see success in an industry where a lot of bike shops were not. And so we we gave them our pitch. We told them what we wanted to do, and they sold us their shop in Fenway. You know, it seemed kind of one after another. We had all these opportunities come to us. So then we had Cannondale.、Uh, they had a、uh, a shop in Cambridge, and they saw that what we were doing, and they said, "We want in, and we have this space over in Harvard Square. Come and run it. You know, come and start a bike shop here, and and you know, make it your your flagship."、And、so we had that, and then we had a another space, not a former bike shop, but an area that really needed one here in Alston. Um, that also, you know, said, "Hey, we have some、uh, something that we have here. We'd love to partner with y'all to、uh, create a, another space. And you know, why not? Sure, <laughs> let's、wow. go in and and and,、uh, and and open a third. What role does your shop play in the local cycling community? I mean, for us, community is kind of at the center of our bike shop model." In addition, so we want community, we want convenience, and we try to do that by sponsoring rides and sponsoring local teams. So, like the Boston University triathlon team,、um, we are active with helping to support the Boston Bike Party and the Boston Cyclists Union, and having partnerships with them to develop kind of 
advocacy plans and get more people to not only learn about us, but tell us what we can do to help improve. How do you manage the public persona and perception that comes with bikes you sell? This is a professional rider. Mm -hmm. Well, semi-professional. He says there's some strong personalities who represent bikes like Lance Lance Armstrong and cultures that adopt bikes like Fixie culture. This is how, how do you manage the perception around some of the bikes that you sell? From our inception, Crimson Bikes has always been about making both bikes and bike culture more accessible. And so we tend to, quite honestly, we don't use the Lance Armstrongs of the world and what have you not as our, um, our champions. What we use are just regular people because we ride bikes. We're regular people. And what I've seen is that when people see folks who are like them riding bikes, those are the those are the people who they tend to ask questions about. Hmm. You know, I for me it was my roommate. For someone else, it may be their friend or you know their um, you know family member or what have you not. So one really kind of concrete way that we do that is uh, we sponsor um, riders in Boston, but those riders are just regular people. They're just folks who we call like kind of crimson bikes ambassadors who are, you know, who may be your neighbor. I'd like to know how you sell bikes to people as in how do they know what is the right bike for someone who comes in with very little knowledge or how do you sell a bike to someone who isn't even really sure what a bike does or could do for them i think for us it's really important to find out like what kind of life like ask a couple key questions to figure out what they want to use the bike for and what kind of lifestyle that they um, lead or hope to lead using that bicycle. So there are definitely a couple of bicycles across the different brands that we offer that are in our arsenal. Like I have a particular one that I love to sell to people, the Breezer Uptown, um, simply because it is super functional, super accessorized and at a great price point. And that works for a lot of people who are beginner bikers. But it's really about what someone, like, in this day and age, people are doing their own research. Like, the Internet's available for you, right? So what have you learned about so far? What is it that you hope to be able to do? And those will kind of point us into one of a few directions. And from there, it's really just about testing it and feeling that joy of cycling. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen someone try to do to their bike? (laughs) that's the weirdest thing Uh, we have at one of our shops we have um, a museum of failure (laughs) 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 or uh, either bike technology going awfully wrong or a person trying to do something to their bike that just does not make sense Um, there was one person who tried to use a shoestring as an improvised uh, chain I I was I was lost for words, like the the idea that he was he was out riding, and um, his chain snapped on him. He wasn't anywhere close to a uh, to a bike shop. So this guy reaches down and says, "You know what I do have? I don't have a chain, but I have shoestrings." So he unlaces his uh, his sneakers and just ties it, and then says, "All right, let's see if this is gonna work." How have online sales affected your business? Honestly, that's something that we fully embrace and take advantage of. And so sometimes someone can actually buy a bike from Crimson Bikes and never step foot in our store if they don't want to. 
um, simply by using our website. They can email us questions. I've walked people through sizing. I've walked people through like here are a couple models you might want to consider even if you've never biked before or for the professional rider like this is what we can get for you mm-hmm. and with our uh, mobile service you can get it delivered to your door if you need service we can come out to you or we can pick it up and bring it back to the shop so in this day and age where people are using more and more web services and looking for that convenience factor it's completely possible with us to be able to not step foot into a bike shop, although we encourage it because that's where you kind of get the community and get kind of tapped into the network. If you wanted to, you could do it all online. About 25% of our sales happen online. Um, It's really cool because, you know, we we came into this. That's how we were born. We said, you know, we're going to have this really, we don't have any any room for inventory. So what can we do Mm -hmm. to be able to sell people bikes that we know and understand and streamline that process. And so that's what we did. So we kind of created what we call a hybrid retail model where, you know, we exist online, in-store, and we connect those two things with this uh, mobile delivery service that'll bring a bike right to your door. So that was a very fascinating journey with uh, Daisy and Charles. And they show us how what they do as a business shares that feeling of freedom that comes along from riding a bicycle. I mean, their company started operating out of a broom closet with just six bikes, and they were able to grow it over time based on demand. I think that's a very important part of growing a business in any cultural industry, and recreation absolutely is a cultural industry because you have to fulfill people's desires. And these are cultural desires. They're desires that we have about having a healthy body, being able to have mobility, Uh, being a part of a recreational crew, a tribe of people who use the same set of apparatus to get around the the world. And I'm really impressed with the way they got the tires turning on their company. So did you have any questions for Daisy and Charles that you wish you would have asked? Well, you could have asked them, and there's a very easy way to do that. What you would do is you can call the Ask a Hustler hotline by calling or texting 978-712-8858. That number again is 978-712-8858. Or you can tweet or Instagram me at Mobile Incubator. Tune in next episode for an awesome interview with Meredith Kasabian and Josh Luke of Best Dressed Signs. They are one of the most incredible sign painting duos in existence. And they're the founders of the Pre-Vinylite Society, which is an industry-wide push for the handmade signage. And it'll also be part of the series that we're putting out about mom-and-pop shops. You can follow my travels on the mobileincubator.com and the Instagrams. Tune in for live stream workshops on Facebook and Periscope. And check out more podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And this is Lucas Bivey wishing you lots of love from the snowy bomb cyclone of Austin, Mass. I step on step foot on campus. I see a lot of people riding bikes around and I'm like, oh, I want to do that, too. So, you know, the only thing that I could think of is where does a person buy bikes? Oh, you buy bikes at Target. So I go to Target. I bought a fifty dollar bike and then um, I had the chain snap on me in traffic the next day and they fixed it for me. And I was like, "Okay, I'm good. I'm good to go. And then, you know, two days later, it got stolen. So (laughs) 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 welcome to Boston.